It is an honor for me tonight to welcome someone who is a black Muslim woman organizer on the front lines of the prison abolition movement right here in Connecticut. Hadia Ali graduated from the University of Connecticut in 2017 with a degree in political science and Africana studies. Hadia has seven years of experience as an organizer, and in 2017, she was recognized by the Connecticut Women's Education and Legal Fund with the Future Is Now Award for her work advancing the rights of women and girls of color in Connecticut. That same year, she received the Connecticut NAACP Student Lifetime Achievement Award for her organizing on UConn's campus. Hadia is a writer, a poet, a mentor, and a co-founder of Abolition UMA, a Muslim-led organization that supports incarcerated Muslims and seeks abolition of all systems in the prison industrial complex. Assalamu alaikum, Hadia. Welcome to Mic Check. Thank you for having me. And so, Hadia, to start off, can you talk a bit about your, your family, your childhood, where you grew up, and what inspired you to this path of community organizing and activism? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I was born and raised in Connecticut. I've always lived like, kind of around the Hartford um, County area. And I'm the sixth of seven children. So um, both of my parents are related to Islam and then me and all my siblings um, who are second generation Muslim. So my mom was actually a Black Panther youth in New York when she was a teenager. And so I've always... Um, I've come from a family that really understands the importance of community organizing and the role that we all have to play, particularly as Muslims, um, in the work to build a better world. And so some of my earliest memories are of, of being on my older brother's shoulders at protests for Palestine, um, handing out food and doing mutual aid with um, people experiencing homelessness in our, in our community. And so I've always had a very strong tie to community because of the way that my family is orienting itself. And like so many other black families in America um, and families of color, we were touched by mass incarceration. Um, so I've had loved ones incarcerated at different points of my life. And what's always been important to me and my family is to understand that how the state tries to make us think about quote unquote crime and criminals does not match up to who the people are in our community that are incarcerated. And so those ties help me to resist kind of drinking the Kool-Aid of um, mass incarceration and really just making sure that I'm putting my community first in all of, these, of all those conversations at work. Thank you so much for sharing that, Hadia. Yeah, that's awesome that you, you, you know, you grew up with all of that and with all of those, those lessons and those experiences. And I was wondering if you could now walk us through a bit of the history of black Muslims here in the United States, uh, as well as specific roles black Muslims have played in liberation struggles here in this country? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I would say what's always been, you know, kind of at the core of my studies of um, the Black Muslim radical tradition, as well as my experiences of it, is that I view contemporary Islam through a lens of foundational Blackness. And by that, what I mean is um, in all Black tradition, non-Muslim and Muslim, there's a focus on the community and there's a focus on the role of community to combat social issues. Um, so looking at how contemporary Islam really mandates all Muslims to reach for that, to reach for these values that are foundational to blackness in America, so such as mutual aid through the cat, um, such as, you know, understanding what an ummah is, which is a Muslim community, and that we all have rights over one another in a black radical tradition. We understand that 
and the state is not going to take care of us. We have to take care of each other, and that is very foundational to blackness as well as contemporary Islam. Um, we see this really throughout organizing of black Muslims in America. And so the first Muslims on American soil were brought over through slavery. Um, and the relationship between anti-blackness and Islamophobia has always been very complex for the people in those communities because at any point, we're experiencing all of that oppression at the same time, right? I don't get to enter room and decide I'm going to be black today or Muslim today. Um, and so organizing in the black Muslim community has always had to have a very complex understanding of how those systems speak to, inform, and work against us. Um, and so we see that a lot in terms of how the organizing is structured. Amer- African-American Muslims make up roughly 1.5 million of an estimated 5 million Muslims in America. And roughly 33% of slaves originated from pre-colonial Muslim-dominated nations of West Africa. So we've always been here. Um, and our presence is also very, very strong. And with that, our, along with our existence, um, our resistance has always been strong. So Islam has a central role in Black liberation and resistance movements that predates the nation of Islam, um, predates Black Muslim resistance in the 60s with other most commonly reached for examples as far as the role that black Muslims have played in America. But in fact, the, pers- the first piece of Islamic jurisprudence written in U.S. soil was written um, sometime in the 17th century by Bin Ali Muhammad, who was an enslaved West African, let me say, Guinea. And enslaved West Africans maintain the traditions and practices of Islam at great risk to their own personal safety and the safety of their families because they understood even back then that to exist as a black Muslim in America means that you have to be resistant um, to colonialism, you have to be resistant to, you know, try to force assimilation, and that for us to exist as our full selves in this country, we have to be willing to fight. Um, and there's also a lot of international examples of this. Um, you see that in the, in the slave resistance in Brazil in the 1800s, where there was a um, where there was a brother Pacifico Lucatan, who during his trial. He was tried for conspiring to result against his slave owners, and he continuously named himself as Bilal instead of his given name um, to invoke the tradition of the famous black community of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. There was also tradition within America um, of a brother named Abdul Rahman Ibrahim Ibn Sodi, who was enslaved by enemy troops. Um, even though he was a Muslim prince in Guinea, he was enslaved actually for 40 years. He married, he had many children here. And then one day at visiting... Um, ambassador from Morocco came upon him and he spoke to him in Arabic. And so it was actually his Islam that won him his freedom, even when anti-blackness couldn't, um, even when anti-blackness was working against him. And so that kind of, that juxtaposition of identities being leveraged against each other and one trying to keep you in slavery and one actually lifting you out of it, that's just one of the ways that we see that black anti-blackness and xenophobia can kind of come in conversation with one another and how our experiences of black Muslims um, contain all of that, right? And then, you know, the Islam of Black revolutionaries, it rejects the domestication of Islam within the U.S. empire, and it moves Islam in the spiritual center of a larger pan-African struggle. This is, um, you know, most, I think one of our most famous Islamic contemporaries is Malcolm X, and how, you know, his work in the nation was very radical, but also even towards the end of his life when he went to hide and, and um, embrace a more secular and traditional Islam, how community remained central to his work, central to his experience as a black Muslim, and how he continued to reject domestic, domestication, even when he became, quote-unquote, tamer in the eyes of um, 
most of the public, he was always that militant um, and that and, you know, a kind of person who understood what foundational blackness meant to his practice of Islam. We also see that with Imam Jamal Abdullah Al-Amin, who's been incarcerated as a prisoner within the United States, and how he rejects domestication. Um, he continues to practice Islam unapologetically and refuses to bow down to the empire. So I can go on forever, <laughs> um, but those are just some of my main, um, my main thoughts about that topic. Thank you so much for, for going into all of that and, and sharing all of that, Hadia. And if, really quick, if you're just joining us, you are tuned to WPKN 89.5 FM in Bridgeport, streaming on the web at WPKN.org, uh, broadcasting from downtown Bridgeport. And the name of this program is Mike Check, and my name is Mike Murley. I host every third and fifth Sunday of this program, and tonight I am in conversation with Hadia Ali. And Hadia was just going through some of the history of black Muslims here in the United States. And Hadia, um, what would you say is the reason why so much of this history isn't isn't more widely known? Yeah, so I think we can really attribute it to a very deliberate and systemic erasure of black Muslims from the narrative of what it means to be an American Muslim. Um, so if you look at pre-9-11 vote versus post-9-11 consumption and conversation around what it means to be a Muslim in America, um, there was a very, very hard shift post-9-11 and turning away from black Muslims as the quote-unquote spokespeople of Islam, because we have such a deep history, and as I was talking earlier, we've been here literally forever. Um, pre-9-11, black Muslims were reached to a lot more in terms of offering commentary um, to act as spokespeople and to kind of craft the narrative around American Muslims. Post-9-11, black Muslims refused to drink the Islamophobia Kool-Aid, and by that, I mean that we were not going to be domesticated into apologizing for terrorism that had nothing to do with us. Um, we were going to be very clear about the fact that a lot of international perspectives on America were formed through America's terrorism in other countries. And we were not going to um, kind of play the model minority or model Muslim for American media. And while a lot of other Muslims, um, including Black Muslims who necessarily identify as African-American, reach for aspirational whiteness in response to Islamophobia in order to better assimilate and to appear domesticated to um, to kind of combat any Islamophobic attacks, some of which were violent on their communities. Black Muslims were, um, were standing kind of strong in that militancy. And so that required the American public to shift the narrative on what an American Muslim is in order to fit a specific agenda. Um, and there's also just a lot of anti-blackness in the Muslim community that leads to us being erased. And so even though half Muslim Americans think of a large percentage of Muslim practices in America and also a large presence in our masjids, our experiences are not validated because anti-blackness is global. Anti-blackness really kind of permeates the ummah in a way that it, it that is a, goes against our religious mandate. Um, but does fit in in the way that, you know, propaganda works against the black community in general. And so we see that um, anti-black is exported to other countries. Um, we see it in our masjids. We see it in really all levels of our community. And so that anti-blackness leads to us being released from the larger narrative internally within um, with other Muslims, but also externally in terms of the American public that wants a certain kind of Muslim to be seen after hearing the, that, that important history and that important context that you just shared, 
Hadia, in terms of your organizing, you've been an organizer for about seven years, and you co-founded Abolition UMA on the front lines of the prison abolition movement right here in Connecticut. Abolition UMA is very powerfully led by you and two other Muslim women. And so I, I wanted to, uh, to see if we could talk about Abolition UMA now. And I wanted to, to see if you could talk about the importance, from your perspective, of this work being led by women. Because I think that's really important, really powerful, that Abolition UMA is very intentionally Muslim women-led. And, and then if you could um, talk about the, some of the specific work that Abolition UMA is engaged in and, uh, and has been engaged in thus far. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would say it was important for me um, when looking for folks to connect with to build Abolition Allah that I looked for other Muslim women to organize with because um, of the roles that Muslim women play and have always played in communities. Um, so our roles as conveners, as our roles as caretakers, um, and not even in the traditional Western understanding of like cooking and cleaning, et cetera, um, but in the way that we genuinely care for one another, our communities through social programming, um, through organizing, being on the front lines, and also wanting to be very intentional about knowing who was going to account for the experiences of incarcerated Muslim women. Um, and so some of the some of the strongest feedback I've gotten from the Muslim we've connected with is that usually when there's programs like this, it's always for the men. Um, one of the women that we work with, Kiara Pope, who is, has become a great personal friend of mine who's incarcerated at York Correctional Facility. Um, she told me usually when programming is for women, it's, it's about, you know, being a parent. It's about who you are as a mother, um, who you are as a woman in the sense that of what role society expects you to play and not necessarily worrying about the needs of incarcerated women, um, and specifically the needs of incarcerated Muslim women, because we know there's an added layer of Islamophobia, there's an added layer about, you know, our roles in Islam, our responsibilities in Islam. Um, Muslim women who are incarcerated at York have to pay $70 for one hijab, which is one headscarf that we're, you know, supposed to wear on our heads. And pro- I, I don't believe that in my experience of organizing or the experiences that have been communicated to me by Kiara and other women, that men think about those sort of things. Um, and so when you think about marginalized communities, the more marginalized you get, if there are people who are caring about those folks, that means everybody else is covered. Most of the time, experiences of incarcerated women are ignored in a larger conversation about what, it, um, what mass incarceration does and what it means to live in an incarceral state. Um, and so I wanted to make sure I was building an organization that was going to care for all folks and not just centering men in that narrative. Thank you so much for sharing that, Hadia. I was wondering if you could talk a, a little bit more about some of the some of the specific work that Abolition UMA is doing and some of the, the programs um, that you're mentioning. So our foundational um, campaign is our um, e-letter campaign. And so Abolition UMA Research Alpha Carnival was meant to be a one-time um, campaign to get volunteers to send e-cards into incarcerated Muslims. This was at um, kind of the start of the pandemic where we knew that incarcerated people were facing higher level of isolation because visitation was suspended, um, phone calls, which were extremely extensive, were also being limited at that time before they implemented the free program, um, the phone calls on the weekends. And we just wanted to send cars in. And the responses that we got were, um, were really horrific. You know, we had a lot of 
people writing back detailing abuse, um, communicating needs that were never going to be met by their, um, their basically slave wage labor that they're expected to perform in prison. Um, families are really feeling the the brunt of the pandemic um, economically, so we're not always equipped to be able to fit those needs. So we decided we wanted to build abolition and we response to that. And so we have the e-letter campaign that we still operate on an annual basis. Um, we do mutual aid year-round, just missing money for um, the commentary books and also for media tablets. Um, and occasionally we also give money to um, the children of incarcerated folks. Um, we are launching our pen pal program, which will go beyond aid. So we're excited for that. Um, we've recently been engaging in some of the entry work. Um, so we've kind of tried to provide some material needs for folks once they get released. And we are actually launching next month an abolition reading group in collaboration with some other abolitionist Muslim organizations um, to expand our political education across the state and um, maybe even um, nationally, depending on who decides to show up. So very excited for all of that. Thank you so much for sharing that, Hadia. And I know that another element to the work that you all do is is about amplifying amplifying the stories and voices of incarcerated Muslims here in Connecticut, whether it's through their writing or through other means. And I was just wondering if you could speak briefly to that. And, and you started to a little bit earlier when you were speaking about you know your connection to Kiara and the the the, the friendship that the two of you have and how she has just really opened up and, and talked about her experiences and just shared so much with you from her perspective as, so, as, as an incarcerated Muslim woman. And so I was wondering if, if you could talk about that, you know, why that's so important for incarcerated folks to tell their own stories and to speak for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what's really a foundational value to abolition Ummah is that we don't do this as charity work. Um, we do it as coalition buildings. We understand that incarcerated people are experts of their experience and are also experts on what needs to be changed because they are living in the worst realization of a carceral state within the United States. Um, and so we we um, write to them as comrades. We write to them as people who are in this fight alongside them, not speaking for them. Um, and so some of the ways we decide to elevate their voices through, for example, interviews, that are posted on our Instagram page um, through through posting letters. They always have permission to post their letters um, on our Instagram page and, you know, have a call to action that really comes from the voices of folks that are inside experiencing these things. And then um, personally, I'm a writer, so I'm a columnist for the Hartford Times, and I've been able to incorporate um, the perspective and quotes of incarcerated folks we work with into my writing about abolition and what needs to change for Connecticut prisons now on the road to abolition. And so all those things are very important because these are our comrades in the struggle. Um, our goal is to free all of our comrades and continue to write, um, continue to fight for abolition and not to act as, you know, advocates in the traditional sense where we assume that they don't have their own voices or that we're quote unquote voices for the voices because they're not voiceless, they're silenced by the state. Um, and so we're working to combat that silencing. Thank you for naming all those important points, Hadia. And we're going to circle back to your writing in just a couple minutes. <laughs> um, so we will get back to to your your writing, like you said. Um, but really quick, and I'm going to come. I'm going to. This is going to be a two parter, real quick. And I know it's like, how can you, you know, talk about any of these topics really quick, right? Or give a quick response to some really heavy um, and, and deep and personal questions and and just and topics. But I was wondering 
Who are some black Muslims and black Muslim women in particular, Hadia, who you draw inspiration and strength from in your organizing and, and in your existence, your lived resistance every single day as a black Muslim woman? And then number two, also at the beginning of the show, I talked about how um, WPKN has been engaged in uh, uh, honoring Black History Month all month long. And in thinking about all you've shared tonight, the culture, the rich, the rich history, and the legacies of rebellion, all grounded in faith, grounded in Islam's teachings about justice and equality and standing up against oppression, what are your thoughts on Black History Month? And what do you see as the possibility, as well as the limitations of this month? And what would you hope that people walk away feeling and doing? You're all very wordy in general, Mike, so... I see this. I see this in the challenge kind of fits this in, um, but those are very important questions. Um, in terms of who inspires me, look at the women in my community. Um, my mother inspires me. My sisters inspire me. Um, Kiara inspires me. Other incarcerated women we work with as well. Um, but in terms of folks who are more kind of public facing, I would say definitely Dr. Suada Blue Kabir, who was an associate professor at the University of Michigan. Um, and who is an activist scholar, and she's absolutely amazing. Um, Dr. Marjorie Hill, who's a co-founder of the Muslim Anti-Racism Coalition, um, does really, really amazing work, and we hope to connect with um, her at a deeper level, as well as Dr. Swad to be able to extend our work for abolition on law. And then also Dr. Kamila Rashad, um, who's a co-founder of the Muslim Wellness Foundation. Um, and that, in particular, is so near and dear to me because this work is very heavy, um, and we're not worrying about our mental health and wellness, then it's not sustainable. Um, so those are very, um, very important women to me personally and a lot of other Black Muslim women as well, um, just in terms of their work to expand this conversation, um, to support the work of organizers, their personal organizing work themselves. Those are the public faces women I would say people should definitely follow. And then thinking about Black History Month, I think that I see Black History Month as as something that you know, I kind of celebrated. I love the whole month. I love being able to um, to tap in with my people and really say, you know, we're black all year. We celebrate that that legacy all year. But this month in particular, you know, we get to really own. Um, I think some of the limitations are really presented by capitalism and other systems that pervert it into a way that corporations can kind of virtue signal and say, hey, look at all this great programming and. Um, the Super Bowl commercial we're going to throw at you that has MLK narrative in the background without actually investing um, in any way in the liberation of black people and actually most of the time working against the liberation of black people in this country. Um, and so I think that with anything in America, there's an opportunity for corporations and for the government to um, pervert the legacy and to use it for their own advantage they're going to. Is what's always going to be a large limitation, um, and also institutions who will virtue signal um, by inviting Angela Davis to speak one day and the next day, um, allowing students to demonize and um, terrorize other Black students, right? And so we understand that um, institutions are what they are. The state is what it is, and so they're always going to, you know, do what they do. But the possibility of Black folks being able to convene and celebrate and um, bring community about in, in our radical tradition and also to invite folks into a larger uprising that extends far beyond this month are it's always an exciting time from that perspective. 
we are officially running out of time. And so, and I'm really excited for this. I know you have a, a piece of writing that you want to share. But, and before you do that, wondering if you could first just um, really quickly give out the uh, info for Abolition UMA and how folks can, can learn more about and support the work. Okay, so folks can reach out to Abolition UMA on our Instagram or Twitter, which is just at Abolition UMA. Um, and we have a link sheet that has a bunch of ways you can support and connect with our work. Um, I want to quickly read a piece that I wrote about my community of um, Black Muslim women and how they really shaped who I am since we were really out of time. Um, this is called The Women Who Raised Me. I come from strong women who come from strong women. Before my mother spoke my name, she professed Shahada. And with this truth came revolution. From Sumeya to Aisha, Khadija to Fatima, every Muslim woman has known revolution. Each and every day we pay our five, drape hijabs from forehead to bosom, is a day we dare to thrive in a world stacked against us. Which is to say that sometimes existence is resistance. It is to say that excellence is how we survive. I have never known love like a salam and handshake on a Ramadan night. The way we raise each other is forever. Passing around the same three hijab pins forever. We are the truth tellers. Mothers and daughters and aunts. Healers and writers and educators. We are, we raise, we breathe revolution. Thank you. 